When the troops of the British General Lord Cornwallis marched out to the field of Yorktown in October, in October of 1781 to surrender to the combined American and French armies under the commands of General Washington and General Rochambeau, General Cornwallis ordered his military band to play the, 16, the tune of the 1643 drinking song, The World Turned Upside Down. There's a reason he, had, he chose that song. He was trying to send a message to the Americans and to posterity in choosing that song. I'd like to read the lyrics of the first stanza of that song to give you a sense of what that song's about and what he was trying to say. Here they are. If buttercups buzz after the bee, if boats were on land, churches on sea, if ponies rode men and if grass ate the cows and cats should be chased into holes by the mouse, if the mamas sold their babies to the gypsies for half a crown, if summer were spring the other way around, then all the world would be upside down. You see, to Cornwallis, it made absolutely no sense at all that this rabble in arms, as another British general called the American army, could possibly defeat what was considered the, the mightiest army in all of Europe. It made no sense whatsoever. It was, it was an insult almost to tradition. It was an insult to history that this country, that this, this newly forming country could possibly do such a thing. I like the way Lin-Manuel Miranda says it in Hamilton when he writes, how does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? It was the right question. I mean, it, it really made no sense because the entry of, of America onto the world scene would turn the world upside down in ways that Cornwallis couldn't possibly anticipate. It's hard to imagine the history of the 19th, 20th, and 21st century without the United States being a major player on the world scene. It did turn the world upside down. And the world's a different place because the United States is in it. In the same way, when Jesus entered the scene, when he was born in Bethlehem and he grew up and began his ministry, he was in the process of turning the world upside down. When we, when we talk about Christmas, we talk about Jesus' birth, we tend to focus on the impact that he has on individual lives. That is, we talk about how his work, his ministry, his life, his crucifixion and resurrection means salvation to sinful men and women like you and me, how it changes our lives and turns them upside down. And that's appropriate to do so because that's an unbelievably powerful, meaningful, earth-shattering story. But Jesus also came to change the world upside down, to change society upside down, to change culture upside down. And we stand here in 2018, about to be 19, 2,000 years after Christ's life, and it's hard for us to see just how enormous the impact his life and ministry had upon the world we live in. Because we live in this world. We don't see, we don't know what it was like before. So what we'd like to do is sort of pull back and look at the macro ministry of Jesus. That is how he affected society as a whole. And then we want to come back at the end and talk about what that means for us as individuals. So the sermon in the sentence today is this. Because Jesus has turned the world upside down in ways we cannot even imagine, our lives ought to reflect that reality in how we address the basic choices we make in our daily lives. Let me open in prayer, and we'll jump into and discuss that. Father, it's hard for us to understand just what a profound difference you have made in this world. Even those of us who love you, we, we, we don't see it. We walk by it. And I just pray that you would give us eyes to see what you've done, and the enormity of what that means in our lives, in this society, in this world. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, Jesus was very upsetting to the world in which he came. 
And to understand why and how, we need to understand the importance that rabbis, and Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher. We need to understand the role of rabbis in first century Judaism. Because you see, the Jews had no wealth, they had no power. They were under Roman rule. The Romans had an empire. The Greeks had a philosophy. The Phoenicians had a navy. The Jews had a book. And that book was the centerpiece of their cultural identity. If you were going to be a Jew, you had to be well-versed in what it meant to be a Jew. And the only way you could do that would be to taught by a rabbi, to study his word. And so the rabbis took on a role that's far more important than teachers do in our society today. They were, they were, uh, they were in a sense, the rock stars of their day in that they were the ones who would pass on God's wisdom to the people. And so those who were in positions of authority, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so on, they were the ones who were the keepers of the flame for the Jewish people. The key, to the, national, the key to national survival was passing on to the next generation that which was the traditional teachings of Judaism. And so to go to school, if you were a, a, young, a student in a school in first century Israel, would mean that at the age of six, the, from the age of six to the age of ten, your job in school would be to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You would memorize those books of the Bible. Now, that seems incredible to us today. I can't even remember my wife's phone number. But they, they were expected to read the entire, not just read the entire old, uh, first five books of the Bible, but memorize it. And why was that? Well, they didn't have printing presses, of course, in those days. Gutenberg was centuries in the future. And people did not have scrolls with the, with, the, with the Torah in it. And so for them to know Scripture, they had to memorize it. And that's what school was. At the, at the end of four years, those who were considered most promising would then go on to a second level of education. They would go on for the next however many years it took to memorize the rest of what we call the Old Testament. Now think about that. So by the time you're done with school, if you're going to be a rabbi, you're going to be a Jewish elder of some kind, you would know from Genesis through Malachi, you would have memorized the whole thing, which seems, un again, unthinkable to us today. But that was essential to maintaining a sense of cultural identity, to passing on the traditions of their people from generation to generation. That's one of the reasons why every time Jesus went into a village to teach and we begin to, we begin to quote Scripture from the Old Testament, people knew exactly what he was talking about because they'd heard it, they'd memorized it, they'd learned it. So it's no wonder that when Jesus enters the scene, this upstart rabbi from Nowheresville, from this small town in Galilee, no particular credentials, when he enters the scene and he begins to teach, it caused an uproar. The authorities of his day didn't like what he was doing. He was turning their world upside down, and they did not like that. So let's see how that plays out. Let's look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and let's go to Luke chapter 4, and let's start reading in verse 16. So here, Jesus has come home now. He's come to Nazareth, where he grew up. So he's the hometown boy. It's Sabbath morning. He steps up into the, into the teacher's role, and he picks up the scroll, and he will, read, he will read from the scroll Isaiah 61. Let's read the text. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll 
and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So imagine you're, you're in the congregation that day, and Jesus does this. And he says, he reads these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to proclaim good news. And then at the end of it, and end of, at the end of reading that text, he says this, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, imagine you're sitting where you are now, and somebody would say a thing like that. Can you imagine the sensation that caused? Can you imagine the reaction that got? It's like, whoa, did he just say what I think he said? Because, again, these people had memorized Isaiah 61. Many of them had. Many of them knew that verse, and they knew what that verse was. It was a messianic prophecy. It was a prophecy that pointed to the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus says these words, they're going, oh, my goodness. And then he sits down. To sit down meant that he sat down in the seat of the rabbi. He sat down in the place of authority. And the people are looking at each other. And how do they react? Well, this is what it says. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So their initial reaction is, whoa, this is really intriguing. Like, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? What, he's the Messiah? Really? Now, let's pull back from the story just for a moment, and let's go back to Isaiah 61, and let's look at the original text, okay? Because what Jesus does is very interesting. If you go back and read the original text from Isaiah 61, you'll see the same words we read at, at the very end of it, and we're not, I'm not going to read it again, but at the very end of it, we get this. You get, you get the phrase, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then in English, you wouldn't have seen this in the ancient languages, but in the English, we get a comma, and the day of vengeance of our God, and then you get a period, okay? But Jesus doesn't read that in the day of the vengeance of our God part. He puts a period, metaphorically, and I guess in a sense, literally, at the end of the Lord's favor. He does not say anything about the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, why not? Like, what just happened? Why is he editing the text, if you will? Well, there's several reasons. We'll, we'll only talk about one today. And to do that, we've got to understand what the, what the view was of the people in the congregation that day and really throughout all of ancient Judea, what their vision of the Messiah was. Because you see, again, the Jews were an oppressed people. They were under Roman rule. And for centuries, they had been beaten down by Egyptians and Philistines and Assyrians and Babylonians, and now the Romans— and they were, frankly, tired of being the, the whipping boys, the whipping girls of the Middle East. They were looking for a Messiah who, in their mind, would be this conquering hero who would overthrow Roman rule and restore Israel to a place of prominence on the world stage that they had not seen since the days of David and Solomon, the days of glory for ancient Israel. And that's what they wanted. That's what they expected. But Jesus puts a period there. He doesn't talk about vengeance. He changes the script, if you will. And that doesn't resonate with them. Because again, they'd heard again and again that the Messiah was going to bring glory to them. Let's look at one text to prove the point. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10. They're thinking of the Messiah in these terms. Judah, and Judah was, a tr was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a tribe from which Jesus himself came. So again, Genesis, way, way back, this was written. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, the imagery we see there is all about power, isn't it? 
lions. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. People will bow down before you. People will obey you. The scepter shall not depart from you. I mean, this is all about power and authority and glory. And so, again, you can see why the people of Jesus' day had this image of the Messiah that he would come fulfill a prophecy like that, that that would be what the Messiah would do. So it's no wonder that when Jesus says this, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. There, there's a ripple of excitement going through the congregation. But then Jesus has to spoil it all because he goes on and expands upon the story. He picks up, he picks up his teaching in verse 25 of Luke 4, and this is what he says. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a widow, woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill in which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So they go in one moment from praising him to the next moment want to kill him. What happened? I mean, what, what in that passage is so offensive to them they'd want to kill him? Well, to understand, we've got to go back and look at the original text and what was going on. The, the story of Zarephath, we, see, we can read in 1 Kings 17. What about Naaman is in 2 Kings 5. Let's dig into it a little more deeply. So there's a terrible famine. Elijah is running from King Ahab. He goes to the town of Sidon. He goes to the widow's house. He goes to Zarephath's house. He goes in and she, takes, she get, offers him refuge. Now, she has nothing to feed him. She's poor. Again, there's a famine. And she, she says to him, oh, I, I'll offer you refuge, but I really don't know how we're gonna, I'm going to take care of you. And what he does is perform a miracle under God's power. And he gives her a jar of oil and a jar of flour, which basically never run out, so she can make bread and feed him and feed her family. And it's a really nice story. But then the story gets even better, because her son becomes ill, becomes very ill, and dies, and Elijah raises him from the dead. Now, we read that story, and we think, wow, that's great. I mean, this is a story of God's provision for a poor widow, widow who is gracious to God's prophet, and we like it. And then we get the story of Naaman. So Naaman has leprosy. Leprosy is a terrible disease. It's a disfiguring disease and one that would cast you as, a, as an outcast in society. No one wanted to be around you because they didn't want to get that disease. So he comes to the prophet Elisha, and he is healed by Elisha, and he goes on his way. And we like that story, too, because who wants a man to suffer, suffer from a debilitating, life-threatening disease? God has provided for him as well. We hear those stories, we go, all right, good work. That's good news. But it wasn't good news to Jesus' audience. Now, why not? Well, who were these two people? Zarephath and Naaman were Gentiles. They were people outside the tribe. Now, as Jesus says when he starts to tell the story, there were many widows in Israel, and there are also many lepers in Israel. But God did not send his prophets to them. He sent, them, he sent his prophets to people outside the tribe. And Naaman was particularly troublesome because, you see, he was a Syrian general. He was one of the oppressors. He was one of the people that Jesus' audience wanted revenge against. Not only that, but how did he even know about Elisha in the first place? Well, if you go back and read the text, the reason he knows about Elisha is there is a slave girl that he has kidnapped from the Israelites, and he has brought into his household, and she says, hey, listen, there's a guy who might be able to help you. So 
he's a bad guy. It's kind of like if Osama bin Laden would show up at the Mayo Clinic in February of 2002, a few months after 9-11, say, hey, can you help me? We'd look at him like, get out of here. We're not going to help you. So when Jesus tells this story, what he's really doing is he's trying to expand their vision of what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not, I am not, the Messiah is not coming just for the Jews. He's coming for, he's coming to establish a kingdom of God that's for all people at all times. It's not for this narrow group of chosen people. He's threatening their paradigm. He's turning their world upside down and they don't like it because they want a Messiah who will bring revenge. He leaves out that line, doesn't he, from Isaiah 61. He doesn't say that line. He's saying your, your vision is wrong, your image is wrong, your expectations is flaw, are flawed. Now, I think it's fair to say that every person in this room, to some degree, has flawed expectations about God. I think all of us have expectations about who he is and what he will do for us. And when we pray to him and our prayers are not answered in the way we think they should be, it's very easy for us to say, what's the deal, God? How come you're not answering my prayer? It's very easy for us to do what they did here, and that is to want to metaphorically throw him off a cliff because he's not meeting our expectations. So I think one of the challenges that is laid before us by this text is simply that. What are the expectations we bring to the table as we try to live lives pleasing to him? But a larger point, if we're really going to understand why Jesus was so upset, we need to understand how he was different than the other rabbis of his day. Because you see, the tradition was in Judaism, if, if you were a teacher, you would appeal to an to a external authority to give your teaching credibility. So a rabbi would say something like this, well, according to verse so-and-so in Leviticus, or according to the teachings of Rabbi Gamaliel, and, and you would appeal to them at, to give credence to your teaching. Jesus didn't do that at all. 75 times in the gospel, he says words like this, truly I say to you, or you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he's doing is redefining their paradigm. He's saying, you think it's this, you think the kingdom of God is this, but I say to you, it's that. And he's challenging the basic cultural assumptions of the day. Let me give you a couple examples. We've talked a little bit about the idea of vengeance. The Jewish people wanted vengeance against their enemies. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were praying for. That's what they were longing for. But Jesus did not come, as we just said, just for the Jews. He came for the, the world at large, the larger Roman Empire and beyond. He came to turn the world upside down, not just one narrow group of people. And the idea of vengeance is a problem everywhere. It was a problem in ancient Rome. If you were a Roman and you were offended by somebody, the common practice was to write what they called a curse tablet. That is, if somebody offended me, I would, I would take a clay whatever, and I would, I would write on it, this tablet, and then I would take it to a shrine of whatever God I chose to worship, and I would lay it at his or her feet, and I would ask that God to put a curse upon my enemy. Here's an example. They found this curse tablet. Archaeologists found this curse tablet in ancient Rome about 40 years ago. I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucherius, the charioteer, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind and pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him be dragged behind his horses and trampled. Sportsmanship at its finest. (laughs) 
in the Roman world, you wanted to destroy your enemies. You wanted to crush them. You wanted to kill them if you could. So whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile, in the context of the world in which Jesus was born, the idea of mercy was not common. I'm not saying it was not possible. I'm not saying there weren't merciful people. Of course there were. But the cultural norm was that. And then Jesus comes in the scene. And he says in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You see how he's challenging the cultural paradigm? You see how he's turning the world upside down? Saying the kingdom of God is about mercy. The kingdom of God is about forgiveness. It is not about vengeance. Your thinking is wrong. Or here's another example. Pride is central to the human heart, isn't it? Everybody in this room struggles with pride. It's impossible not to. The difference between now and then is at least we know that pride is wrong. And I'm not saying that nobody in the ancient world thought that pride was wrong, but among the Romans, boasting about one's accomplishments was considered a virtue. Humility was, was, was not considered a virtue at all. And even in the Jewish circles, you think about the number of times Jesus will condemn the Pharisees for their pride, for publicly praying so that, so that people will think they're great examples of piety, or giving their tithes in very public ways so that people will praise them for their generosity. Jesus condemns the Pharisees again and again and again for displays of pride. In the Roman world, in the Roman Empire, in the Gentile world, pride was considered a virtue. I want to read the birthday oration of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the emperor at the time Jesus was born. So he's a contemporary of Jesus, all right? And at one of his birthday parties, imagine coming to the birthday party and the guest of honor stands up and says this to you. Three times I triumphed at oration. 21 times I was named emperor. The Senate voted yet more triumphs for me, which I declined because the victories won by me. The Senate voted thanks for me to the immortal gods. Fifty-five times in my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. I've been counseled 13 times. I was highest-ranking senator for 40 years, held the office of Pontific Maximus. All citizens with one accord unceasingly prayed in every holy place for my well-being. A golden shield was given to me by the Senate and people of Rome on account of my courage, clemency, justice, piety, wisdom, and kindness. After this time, I excelled in all influence. Wow. <laughs> right? Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> the historian Robert Lane Fox wrote this, among pagan authors, humility had never, almost never been considered a term of commendation. So whether it was the Jewish world or the Gentile world, the desire to bring attention to oneself and honor to oneself was ubiquitous. And then Jesus comes and spoils the party by saying this, in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them, them being his disciples, to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Whoa, talk about turning the world upside down. That's exactly what he just did. He's saying... Humility is a virtue, not pride. You're not to serve yourself, you're to serve other people. So Jesus came with a different message than the world is used to hearing. At the, I like what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 28. 
When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as, not as their scribes. Jesus came to bring a unique message, to bring a message that would turn the world upside down. And so 2,000 years later, we certainly violate most all of the teachings of Jesus. We struggle with every one of these things. But the values that Jesus taught have taken root in the society, and even though we may, we may dishonor them with our violations of them, we at least recognize the virtue of humility and mercy, forgiveness, and graciousness in the face of our enemies. So, let's bring this home. In the big picture, Jesus affected society, but let's talk about our own lives. What does this mean for us? I have a good friend who's involved in ministry, and he works with a lot of college kids. We had, we had lunch about a month ago, and he was telling me about uh, teaching he did with a bunch of college students this summer. And he said to them, he challenged them in five areas of their lives. He's saying, if you're going to be representatives of the kingdom of God, if you're going to stand before others and say, I love Jesus, then he said, our lives ought to reflect a distinct difference between the way we live and the way the world operates in at least five areas. I want to run through those briefly. The first one is, how do we make decisions about money? Now, we live in a world that honors and glorifies, almost deifies consumption. Every time you turn on the TV and every time you see a commercial, somebody's trying to sell you a product which will make your life better, whether it's beer or a car or a vacation or even shampoo. If we use whatever the product is, it's going to somehow fulfill us and make our lives better. There's a reason we have the saying, keeping up with the Joneses. There's a reason that the American dream is about money. We, have a, we live in a society consumed with the idea that more is better and most is best. And Jesus came to turn that assumption on our head. He says we're to store up treasures in heaven, not treasures in earth where moth and rust can destroy. We just went through a stewardship season. And when Tom preached the sermons up here about stewardship, Part of the message was that it's important for people to give money to the church so the ministries of the church can function. But there was a larger message he was trying to communicate that's really much more important. And that is that we're to live lives of radical generosity, lives that are not in lockstep with the culture at large. God has given us the resources he's given us to be used for, the glory, for his glory and for the work of the kingdom of God. And yes, we need to take care of our families. And yes, it's okay to have a car and go on vacation. All those, of course. But nonetheless... Do we ask the question, God, this money is yours, and what do you want me to do with it? Second issue is this. How do we think about sex? How do we think about our sex lives and marriage? We live in a culture that says that anything goes between two consenting adults. That's the message society gives. The message of Scripture, the message of the kingdom of God is radically different. Jesus says that marriage is a sacred institution established by God for two people to join together in a pledge of fidelity and love till the day they die. He says that sex is to be reserved for the context of marriage. Now, every one of us bristles at that. Every one of us has struggled with that and struggles with it to this day. I don't care if we're young or old. I don't care if we're married or single. I don't care if we're gay or straight. It doesn't matter. The message of Scripture is problematic. We'd rather be ruled by our hormones than by the Word of God. And society says we should be ruled by our hormones. That's what society tells us. Do what you want. That's okay. And yet, there it is. There's the word of God. What do we do with that? If we're going to be representatives of the kingdom of God, how do we stand before the world and march out of step with God in terms of the way we approach marriage and sex? What do we do about that? Here's the third one. 
How do we deal with issues of reconciliation? What do we do when we're offended, when someone offends us, when somebody hurts us, when there's a broken relationship? Do we draw a line in the sand and say, you've got to take the first step toward reconciliation? Or do we dig in our heels and say, I'm not going to be reconciled with you at all? Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Jesus calls us to forgive. Jesus calls us to reconcile. So what do we do with that? Now, I want to say very quickly, there are people in this room who have been deeply, deeply hurt by another individual. There are cases, especially in a marriage or especially between parent and child, siblings perhaps. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different contexts in which this could occur where the offense is so great. For me to stand up here in front of you and say, just forgive, just let it go, just reconcile, is naive. I mean, that, we can't just have a kumbaya moment when somebody's really, really cut us to the core of our heart and soul. So what about that? What do we do about that? I mean, it's easy, in the, not easy, but it's easier in the, in the more day-to-day conflicts between, between a husband and wife in a good marriage, or between parent and child when they have a good relationship. That's, that's easier to do. But what about the really tough ones? Well, God's command to be peacemakers doesn't go away no matter what our circumstances are. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that it's going to happen quickly, but we can't ignore the fact that God calls us to be people of peace. And he doesn't want us to wallow in anger and bitterness and hatred. And so maybe in some relationships, the relationship is so toxic, we can never really fully reconcile the person in terms of having an ongoing relationship with them. But we need to let go of the hatred and the anger and the bitterness that will corrode our soil, our soul and poison us to the depths of our heart. We've got to take steps toward letting that go. And that might take years of counseling. It might take years of prayer. It might take years of people coming alongside of us. But we can't just say, well, that's the way it is. Because that's going to ruin us. That's going to poison us. We've got to be agents of reconciliation. How do we spend our time? Everybody I know is busy. And if you have little kids, you're really busy. I know when we had little kids, my goal for the day was to get them in bed at the end of the day. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about my job. I didn't care about my wife. I didn't care about anything except you just go to bed. <laughs> Some of you are in that stage of life, and I get that, and it's really hard, and I empathize with you because I went through it, and I see my kids going through it with my grandchildren, and it's hard. And so I kind of give you an exemption. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Nonetheless, how do we use our time? I mean, do we spend time daily reading God's Word? Do we spend time in prayer? Are we engaged in ministry on any level? Are we engaged in the work of the church? Do we come to church regularly? Or do we say, you know what? No, I've got other, I, I, I'm too busy for that. Well, everybody's busy. Everybody is. You know, somehow we manage to find time to watch six hours of bowl games. Or we manage to play 18 holes of golf or we manage to go shopping at the mall for three hours. Or we spend hours on Facebook or or Twitter, or whatever our social media gig is. I mean, we manage to find time to do other things, but somehow I can't find, I can't find 15 minutes, 20 minutes to read, read the Bible and pray. I can't be involved in ministry at all because, heck, West Virginia's playing. Who, Frank, who did West Virginia play? Whoever they played. You know, all these stupid bowl games that nobody even cares about, and yet we watch them mindlessly. Do we use our time well? Finally, How do we approach the need for compassion? This is a broken world. Do we spend time, do we ask ask the question, are there people in my world that I can reach out to? Is there a widow down the street who's lonely and I can take her out to coffee? 
Are, there, are the elderly people who live down the street from me need their leaves raked, and I can do that for them? Is there, a, is there a ministry in this city that I can get involved in? Have I had an experience in my life that has wounded me deeply, but I've grown from that and learned from it, and I can, I can therefore pass on whatever wisdom God has given me through that experience. I've gone through a divorce, or I've lost my spouse, or I've had cancer, or whatever it might be that I've learned from that, and I can come alongside people who are, who are involved in, in those struggles right now, and I can be with them and offer them whatever compassion I can. Do we ask questions like that? You see, God called us to be agents of the kingdom, and the kingdom is turned upside down. It's not like the world at large. And so do we look at the world through eyes that are different than the people around us? Do we look at the world and say, okay, God, I recognize you're calling me to a life that is different because you have come to change my life and you've come to change the world. And the way in which you do it is through us, the people in this room, living a life that is distinctively different than the, the common practice of our society. What do we do about that? Cornwallis was right. The world was turned upside down in 1781. The world was turned upside down in a far more dramatic way 2,000 years ago. It was going to be turned upside down in the future. It's going to be turned upside down because you and I do something about it by taking seriously the call that God says to be agents of the kingdom. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you that you are a good God and that you choose ordinary people like us who are broken and flawed, who are selfish, prideful, who want vengeance against their enemies. You do your work through us, and I just pray you would help us to be agents of the kingdom who see the world is meant to be turned upside down. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.